This episode is dedicated to our Stand With The Arts title sponsor, William Ravis, the official real estate company of the Arts Foundation. Hi, I'm Emma from the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. A few things have changed since last season, mainly a global pandemic. So we felt it was important to document the impact this event has had on artists from Cape Cod and beyond. Each of these conversations were recorded from a distance over Zoom. As such, you may hear a few imperfections in the audio. We hope these conversations comfort, inspire, and remind you that we're in this together. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. And today we're talking with singer-songwriter Will Daly. Daly is an independent recording and performing artist. His sound is described as a rich vintage vibe while maintaining a firm appreciation of AM rock, pop, and big hooks. His critically acclaimed work has received several awards and accolades and has been featured on over 50 TV programs and films. His latest album, Golden Walker, was released in 2019. Daly is a Boston-based artist. Welcome, Will. Will, it's so good to see you. You know, we met you at the beginning of the pandemic because <laughs> we really thought, and Amy said, you know, I thought the next time we'd see you would be would be live, but we're not. And, you know, it's January and a lot has happened yeah. since, since we saw you. So how's it going? I mean, it's going well for me now. I think I've made some adjustments. I think human beings are pretty malleable and that can be a great quality to have and uh also a detriment to our health to justice and everything if we're too malleable i think we're seeing that nationally that we have been too malleable with our justice and just the stress of the world and the nation and the virus and that anxiety mixed with i think we've all from this had to face ourselves being still not being able to distract ourselves other than the tyranny of content that we have at our fingertips. And that after some time is only so much Schitt's Creek can do for you. You know, there's only so much a binge watch can really do for you mentally and distract you and cheer you up or make you think. And I got tired of playing online. I I didn't stream anything from, I think June, mid June to just, uh, December. I, I finally started doing it again in December, very quietly on my Facebook page, not announcing it, nothing. Just at 7.30 on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, I go live. And if anyone catches it, they catch it because I was falling out of rhythm. I was falling, my um, mental and physical health as a performer, just your voice or your ability to get through playing for 45 minutes or an hour starts to atrophy. So I did that for my physical and mental health. And I haven't figured out why yet, but it's just nice to do. I feel better just for doing it without any kind of attachment to it. You know, you have to remember when you're an artist that you're doing it uh, as your vehicle to make sense of this existence, you know, and to oil, oil the machinery of, of making it through this life. Tell us a little bit about the pre-pandemic plans that you had. What, what was going on? with your career? I was writing and making music for a podcast about travel and music with big global partners. And that was immediately put on ice. I was 
working on a tour. I had tours booked in Europe and on the West Coast. The West Coast one was going to finish in September with playing with Pearl Jam and Kings of Leon and all these amazing bands on Pearl Jam's um, Eddie Vedder's festival, which is a coup for an independent artist to be invited to something like that. I don't. I book all my own shows. I do all my own hustling, and um, so that was a big coup. And those kind of thing hurts. It hurts for the big artists too. And I had a, I was working on a tour in China, which was actually canceled, you know, put on ice in January. And I remember the promoter saying, "Hey, we really have to wait on this." I said, oh, "Absolutely, totally. Good luck over there with that. It sounds really scary." And then two months later, the whole world is wrapped up in it. I I think part of like snapping out of funk was saying, you know, I'm just going to go book a studio session. What makes me happiest in life? What has got me to this? points thus far it was making art and making music and one of my happiest spaces is in the recording studio with brilliant people and i found a studio in in orleans uh run by john evans uh bass player and music director with tori amos for years wonderful person wonderful studio amazing talent and me and my drummer dave brophy went there and recorded just one song that i had and I have no expectations of ever even releasing it. It was like my own therapy, you know, put myself back in the space. And when three of us, we had the big studio to ourselves, but, you know, just wore masks and everyone was safe and ended up recording a seven minute song, you know, which um, was extremely liberating and silly um, and whimsical to do, you know, just um, to not have to think, oh, I have to bring this to market and I have tours coming up and, not have like i said it was just in the moment what do you need to do you need to do what brings you peace and gives you strength and 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 momentum and energy just to be alive talking to people over this season it's so interesting how different everybody's process is and so i i was wondering if if there was if you saw an opportunity that was kind of sparking you to, to do something virtually in a different way. I think it's interesting that you're, you're seeing it as a way to get through, but not necessarily adopting right. that. So that's, that's an interesting take. I mean, you know, you know right. what's best for your art. And I wonder too, like uh, sometimes when I say I went into this, you know, little rut, I also did a huge project with the Gardner Museum and I played at the uh, Wang Center and that aired on TV and did a whole performance there by myself with one camera and one mic. And that's a, a lot of like just adjusting to this moment because the Wang Center, the Wang Center, the Box Center, you know, wanted to draw attention to what they're going through and highlight artists on their stage. I did an installation with the Gardner Museum where I, a piece of music uh, based off a Whistler painting. And those were all projects done, you know, this way. I wonder too how much we will hold on to some of these things. From the artist's viewpoint, when I play online and I'm streaming, I know I'm not getting through the best representation of myself on an audio frequency level, on an audio capture level, on a visual level, and then on that exchange of energy level right and i wonder how much artists will say yeah let's keep doing that let's keep 
I want you to share my show while I'm playing live in front of this audience, also then project it out to the world. And I wonder how much promoters will want the artists to do that because they're going to the next city the next night. You know, if, if we get back to that world, which I imagine we will. But um, at the same time, I am not going to try to figure it out right now. You know, I'm going to find my work where I get it. I'm going to find the muse where I get it. I'm going to tend to the muses I see fit and, and answer that. And honestly, in the history of art, economics have always driven art. There is no art does not exist without subsidy. My, Michelangelo did not do his work without the Pope. And Van Gogh did not do it without Theo Van Gogh. And in America, we have all this, this legacy of music and art because of economics. If you take uh, violins and cellos away from those who don't have money for, to go to the schools where they provide those instruments, they say, all right, well, I'm going to buy this $20 guitar and amplifier at Sears and invent a whole new kind of music, which then you guys who robbed us of the opportunity to have the violins and the cellos be so mad about that kind of music. And then when you don't provide us with the electric guitars and amplifiers, once that is now firmly established as a brand of music, well, we're just going to take a turntable and a microphone and invent a whole other kind of music that'll be a billion dollar industry, which you'll also be pissed about. And those are economics driving art through forms of oppression. But it's also, it's really... Uh, fascinating how that is the legacy of American music art is oppression. And tells, it tells you a lot. Artists are always, that's the extreme example of artists always going with the flow of, of economics, what they're allowed to do, what they can get their hands on, what paint could Vincent get is what his brother could pay for. That's it. How many more paintings would he have had if Theo could get more paint or, or whatnot? Um, or if he didn't do it, there wouldn't be any of it if Theo didn't provide the paint. So it's just interesting how the economics of all this will lead out. And that's why we have so much bedroom recording now um, on Spotify and so many, everyone can, the economics of this is sending every new creator to their laptop by themselves. They don't have to know how to play any instrument. They now have uh, applications that can create the beats for them the string arrangements or the noises that they want, the sounds that they want. And so our music's become more isolated and um, optimized to sound good on these speakers or these speakers here, because that's where it's mostly coming from. So the economics are always driving. How important are the voices of artists right now in this time? That's a good question. Um, the voices of artists, you know, I think of Nina Simone, or I think of Marvin Gaye, or I think of Sting in the 80s, or, you know, grunge rockers in the 90s going against uh, the industry of music and MTV. Everyone's in, our, I mean, the thing we're all adjusting to, and we're thrusted onto these platforms to have our conversations. We're adjusting to every human being on earth having a voice right now on a global scale. So every art, everyone, I believe everyone's an artist somewhere. You know, if you're a cook, you're a gardener, you're a musician, you're a painter, um, 
you 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 know rescue old machinery and update it and fix it that's your art and you know the greatest tragedy to being alive is not finding that that's it the greatest tragedy is not make not succeeding in art the greatest tra tragedy is not finding your art and music more than a lot of other arts in this past hundred years has really figured out how to monetize itself through recorded music, right? Which is just an anomaly to the history of humankind. Music always existed, but the past hundred years, it became a very, very, very big business. Everyone has a voice. Everyone's an artist right now. Everyone has, you could say an opinion or whatnot, but, uh, once an artist uses their voice, there's not another thousands of voices then dissecting what they think about that response. And since I became really cognizant of that, and at first thinking, well, what the heck am I doing? I passed through that moment as well and came out of the other end of your, your job is to exercise the art that you found and when you do it in, the, in its original form, which is in front of people together in that reciprocal exchange of energy, you're doing the most primal and important job you can be doing with the art that you found for yourself. Everything else is business. Uh, everything else is kind of out of your control. When I think of streams, sales, ticket sales, um, I can get lost and pulled away from my role in what makes me important as an artist and a musician, which is why it's, I think it's been harder during a pandemic because I really became, you know, really became so connected to that, especially in the past like three years prior to the pandemic. Might have thought it before, might have known it and acted upon it, not recognize that it. it's just so simple and singular. But a hundred thousand years ago, we were around a campfire and, and there's some people leading each other and banging some sticks or chanting something, right? And it worked and it had a power and it continues to this day, sometimes just through large amplifiers. Um, and you can feel it in tiny ways, even through a screen when you're performing and you can see people's response and, and all that and that it means a lot to them. So artist voices in, in the public sphere, I don't know. But the practice of art and the practice of a musician to really connect and be honest in the live setting face-to-face -face, where all our fears and our differences kind of melt away um, and your job is to help them melt away, um, answer pain, answer joy. That's where the artist's voices, voices matter. And I think, you know, to, to that point, we are in the tyranny of content. And we have to start acknowledging that as human beings because we can't possibly watch every great piece of art on Netflix, Hulu, Disney, Amazon, listen to every 10,000 10, songs come out a day on Spotify. Can't possibly listen to all the great ones. This song that I did that seven minutes long, my first thought when I was talking to the team I made it with was like, I really don't want to put this out on Spotify. I would... I would love to just like play it for people one at a time. I think I might, once I have it mixed, 
we're we're in we're still editing it and doing a couple tracks on it and then we've got to mix it and master it is maybe you know we'll still be in here i'll finish it within the month have a hang where i'm like all right everyone get a nice pair of headphones and i'm going to play this for everyone and that's it i want to talk about why i made it what i was thinking seven minutes long i don't want to take up too much of your time but it might be more fun to do it this way and i'd rather play it for 20 people that way than 200,000 people the other way and have it just drift in to the tyranny of content because like you said then you're on to the next thing well i i have to watch this this show everyone's talking about it i have to listen to this album i i have to read this book i have to read this article i have to we can't we we can't what are we doing the ubiquity of of all our stuff right now takes away so much of the work and the uniqueness of it. What are you doing right now to take care of yourself? I surrounded myself with things throughout the day that I have a little balance board that I can stand on with my stand-up desk that I bought from some guy on Craigslist whose office bought him the stand-up desk and he didn't want. So I got a brand new stand-up desk for a hundred bucks which really, really helped. And it helps also my recording process because it might look clean behind me, but right here where I'm looking is an absolute mess. So if I'm recording all day, I, uh, there was days where I'd be sitting and recording all day and working on something or, or working on some other artist's track and producing. And I would just be sitting and I, I would just, why am I, why does everything hurt? And uh, I just, especially during a pandemic. And uh, I, I had to acknowledge that my exercise and my physical health came so much from playing live lifting an amp into a car multiple amps guitars merchandise out to the club up onto the stage standing for two hours talking to everyone for an hour afterwards packing up getting back in the car you know that was that was a really great gym membership for me because i never had a gym membership i didn't need one and uh then that goes away and i, I just felt like oh, everything's starting to hurt so I have my balance board. I got one of those like rolling pins here, push up thing. I got to push a pull up bar in the door frame. There's multiple days in a row. I pass the pull up bar and I don't do anything. But then sometimes it's just because I'm really bad at saying like, I'm going to exercise for 45 minutes. I just feel like life is exercise if you do it right. So, you know, uh, but some, you know, I'll pass the pull up bar a couple of times and will, I will do some, um, and I'm not very much like, I'm going to do 100 pull-ups or anything. I, I, I can maybe get five out, but I can do two, you know, five times a day if I want. So um, I started in December. I was like, all right, I haven't been playing any shows. I had a bunch of outdoor stuff that came to me over the summer last minute. But I would, the band would show up to play on a stage where we couldn't be near each other. And we hadn't played together in months. And it felt good for a minute. But then you realized, wow. It's really hard for us to go an hour and a half right now because we often in a normal <laughs> year wouldn't even need to, re we wouldn't rehearse. We just go play a hundred shows a year. Um, and so once the, even those summer gigs, which we had to figure out how to get through were gone, all of a sudden it's December and I realized I'm really kind of losing, I'm atrophying here. And I got back in my shower and every Tuesday and Thursday night at seven 30, I don't tell anybody. I don't put up posts about it. I don't make up invites or anything. I might, but I've just been going live and anywhere from 20 to 40, 50 people watch and come in and out, get about a thousand views each night. And I say, Hey, I'm just trying to figure out my stuff here and stay fit. And <laughs> if you want to hang out with me, let's do it. Tell me, I'll try to play something you want to hear and talk a lot and go back and forth. 
um, making a vinyl pressing of my second record ever that I made when I was basically a baby and didn't know what I was doing. Been working on all kinds of different projects here and there. It just starts picking up again and the adjustment of what to do next and all that. Mm. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, thank you. For thank you for having me today. Well, I just love talking to you. Yeah. It, it's just, I knew that you would give us a good update on what you've been up to and um, you're so, I really appreciate your honesty. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to today's guest, Will Daly for this episode of the creative exchange podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the executive director of Provincetown community television and I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Until next time, stay well, everyone. We'd like to thank the John and Thurza Davenport Foundation for supporting the Creative Exchange. The Creative Exchange podcast is a collaboration between the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod and Provincetown Community Television. Words and music of this season's theme song are by Sarah Burrell, copyright 2009. To donate to the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod's Arts Relief Fund, a project supporting Cape Cod artists and arts organizations impacted by the pandemic, visit artsfoundation.org.